Welcome everyone to the Nerd Journey Podcast, episode number 125. We're joining you every week to talk IT career progression and bring you the advice we wish we'd been given earlier in our careers. I'm your host, Nick Cordy, at NetworkNerd underscore on Twitter, filling in for my normal co-host, John White, at Journeyman. We are both pre-sales technical engineers with backgrounds in IT operations. We hope our career discussions will be vendor neutral, relevant across disciplines, and remain timeless. If you're enjoying our content, please drop us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you subscribe. And if you want to get in touch with us, tweet or DM at Nerd Journey. Ultimately, we're just two nerds on a journey to virtual enlightenment. So let's take a trip. All right, everybody. This is the beginning of our next trilogy. That's right, a three-part series with none other than Tom Hollingsworth. Now, Tom has had a really interesting career as a network engineer. He actually works for Gestalt IT today with Stephen Foskett, and he's acting as the Tech Field Day event lead. In part one, we're going to hear Tom's story of how he developed that specialty in networking. And it all started with phone support at Gateway Computers. And how he made it to eventually achieve a major networking certification, the CCIE, or Cisco Certified Internetwork Expert. That's a big deal in the networking industry. And at that point, he was actually able to make a big impact on the exam and influence its direction. And he's also going to share a little bit of advice for those who might be new to the network engineering space. So let's get to the first part of the trilogy. Here's part one of our interview with Tom Hollingsworth. Thanks so much for joining us on the Nerd Journey today. Thanks for having me on, Nick. I appreciate it. Can you start by telling our listeners a little bit about who you are and what you do today? Sure. Uh, so my name is Tom Hollingsworth, and uh, I spent uh, well over a decade as a senior enterprise network engineer for a reseller. And then about eight years ago, I became an event lead for uh, Tech Field Day, as well as a network analyst at Gestalt IT, which means I spend most of my days um, talking to companies in the enterprise IT space and learning what they do. And then uh, well, probably three or four times a year, I put on a technology event. Think of it like a really awesome webinar. Sounds like fun. Sounds like a really interesting transition that we can dig into a bit more. And I just want to get the one thing out of the way here so that nobody gets confused. Tom Tom's handle is Networking Nerd. He is very deep network expert. Mine started off in the Spiceworks community as network nerd. I wasn't thinking about anything network related. I just thought it sounded fun and cool. No overlap. Yeah, I think it's funny that I get a lot of spam for people that are thinking that I am the nerd that does a lot of person-to-person networking. Like, you know, hey, how's it going? How are you? And I'm like, I'm not that kind of guy. I do the stuff in the walls that makes the internet work. And they're like, oh, yeah, we don't want to talk to you. Yeah, I guess TCPIP networking nerd might might have been an interesting handle, but you know nobody thinks of those things that far in advance. And I yeah. used to get DMs about, "Hey, can you help me with this switch config?" I'm like, eh, not really the guy for that. Now you started off as a field technician that was sort of a jack of all trades, right? Is that accurate? Earlier in your career? Yeah, it, I I spent about six months on the phone with the Gateway Computers, and uh, that was my entry into tech support. And I knew that that wasn't going to last when they uh, basically told me I, I had like two weeks to find a new job. 
and they were closing our call center. So I, I did some contract work for a little bit, and then I, I lucked into the job that I ended up with, which was uh, kind of being a junior level help desk person. But we worked uh, as a, with a reseller. We did a lot of work in schools. And so that kind of let me cut my teeth in, in reality. So I got to kind of work my way from you know the, the person who you run out to a site to plug in patch cables and fix uh, Microsoft Word all the way up to when I left, I was doing a lot of uh, phone system deployments and large network troubleshooting. And, and I was essentially the, the person in the office that you went to when everything else didn't work. And it was kind of unique that the company allowed me to grow as much as I did and, and keep giving me challenges to keep me occupied. And how big was the team you worked on at the time? So the whole company was about 40 people. Um, the engineering team was you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of about eight. And we all had our specialties. You know, you had your Novell guys, you had your Microsoft guys. I was the network guy. Um, you know, we had some wireless people. So we we essentially, we the senior engineering team kind of had their own little area that they worked in. And then we had a bunch of junior folks that we could pull in to help us, you know, like when I needed somebody to go put phones on desks or I needed somebody to go hang access points or, you know, hey, I need to teach you how to do this so that you don't have to have me come out here and fix this every time it goes down, those kinds of things. And what, how did you become the networking guy? Was that just something that had always interested you? Were you, did you naturally excel at that? How'd that come to be? Well, the, the networking background actually comes from like, I think it was my last month on the phones at Gateway Computer. Just for, you know, that was back in 2002, 2003. And I don't know if you if you remember this or not, but that was still like the king of dial-up modems. I can still rebuild the Winsock stack on a Windows 98 PC in my sleep. Because that's oh, basically wow. what we had to do to fix AOL was we'd yank the Winsocks uh stack we'd rebuild it and then we'd have them call in on their uh modem to make sure that everything worked and then we'd tell them to call AOL because it wasn't our fault but about the last month that I was there I started getting cable modem calls you know people like oh I, they'd say well I can't get to the internet I'm like oh well we'll rebuild your modem stack oh, I don't have one of those I got this new thing from from Charter or Time Warner I'm like oh so I started doing a lot of Googling for troubleshooting on networking and I was like okay well let's try this and if this doesn't work you're gonna have to call the cable company and when I got done at the job, I was like, man, there may be something to this networking thing that I really need to look at. And so when I started the new job, like a lot of what we did was server based. So I kind of didn't really like I, I needed to get some Nobel experience under my belt. I need to do some Microsoft stuff. But as I started kind of getting better at that thing, I noticed that there was really a need to fill a void for networking. And I still remember the day that I was uh, consoled into a Cisco router and my mentor was on my phone walking me through what I needed to do. He's like, all right, I'm going to need you to type this command in and I'm going to need you to tell me what the output says. And he was, he kind of knew just enough Cisco to, to do the things he needed to do. And I remember as we're waiting for the routing table to basically update itself so that everything worked, I, I remarked, I'm going to have to learn how to do this, aren't I? And he's just this slow talking Southern guy. He goes, yep, better buy yourself a book. And so that's kind of where I got into networking from there. And then they just kept pushing books in front of me and telling me to do this. But the funny thing is, is that as I started learning more and more, it became more and more natural to me for that's how, you know, networking operates. And so it just, you know, I ran with it. I have to say, I was one of those people who used AOL, never needed to rebuild a modem or anything like that at the time. But 
I was definitely hooked. My sister and I, my younger sister and I used it quite frequently. In regard to book after book, this was really during a time when there weren't a lot of online forums that you could use to do research. It was you needed to go and read those books or talk to somebody who had been there, right? Yeah, exactly. You know, you start off with the the basics, you know, like Wendell Odom's CCNA book. You know, it's like uh, it's four and a half inches thick and it makes a big thud when you slam it on the desk. And then when you're done with that, you you have to move to the next level. So if you're doing enterprise networking, you have to learn, you know, the Cisco routing exam, Cisco switching exam. And I remembered that I knew I was making progress in my career when Barnes and Noble didn't have the books that I needed anymore. And when I finally got to that point where I had to go buy uh Jeff Doyle's Routing TCP Volume 1, which is, you know, the Bible for all like advanced level networking studies. I was like, okay, maybe I'm I'm finally at that point in my career where I've, I'm trying to crest that summit. So, you know, you have to get the Routing TCP book and the BGP4 book from Halabi, and then you you know pick up your first CCIE troubleshooting and and uh, and study guide, and you're just like, all right, well, uh, and then by that point, you know that was probably in the late 2000s. That was kind of the point when online forums and online study groups really picked up speed, and so now it wasn't just I'm going to read this book cover to cover six times and hope that I know it really well. I could jump on forums like group study and be like, all right, so I'm, I'm running into this problem when I'm trying to lab this up. Oh yeah, well I ran into that problem too. And here's what I had to do to fix it. So it, my progression kind of tracked along with online learning becoming such a big deal. That's awesome. To your story earlier, there is a specific elegance to being able to open up a command line and do everything you need to do from it. I, I can't explain it, but it's just amazing to watch somebody who really knows their way around the command line. I remember working with consultants who could figure the, the ASAs we got, you know, at a former employer. And do, the, you just watch them and you go, man, that's, that's impressive. It looks like the computer stuff that we used to see in the movies when we were kids. I mean, I can still remember watching war games and seeing uh, Matthew Broderick just typing away at a computer. Whatever he was doing looked really cool. And then I got to a point where I could do that, and I had to remember these multi-part command strings in order to be able to get like the certain things that I needed out of a route table. And I was like, okay, maybe not as exciting as averting global th thermonuclear war, but definitely pays better. Yeah, that's a good point. Maybe that's a reason that a lot of people end up specializing, because you got really good at it. Did you choose to spend more time on it to increase your pay or just because you knew, all right, I'm really good at this so that I, I need to focus on it? It's always a difficult task to try to figure that out because what you may excel at may not necessarily be something that your company is really looking for. Because at first, I mean, I kind of had to know a little bit about everything. I needed to know how to deploy exchange servers and I needed to know how to configure Novell group-wise. But as I started kind of drilling into the networking side of things a little bit more, then the networks that we deployed got more and more, I don't know, complicated, uh, full featured maybe, because we now had a routing expert on staff. And then, you know, the company said, well, I need you to kind of work on these phone system things. All right, well, that's like three more tests that I need to take. So I'm going to need to study for those. And so part of that was like the company really wanted me to work on this aspect of networking, but I still kind of tracked along the other side of it. And that's where my CCIE study came in. Uh, you know, they knew the value of having a CCIE working for them. They just struggled to kind of balance what kind of projects they were going to get 
uh, versus what they were going to have to you know, pay to basically help me get certified. And it was funny because it probably wasn't more than a, maybe two or three months after I got that. Then they got their first bid that came in that had, you know, like a CCIE requirement for that. And before they would have had to check that one out because, well, there's no way we could we could work on that. And then they, they were smiling because like, hey, we got one of those guys in the back. And they were able to, you know, put something together and, and we ended up winning mostly because it was like, okay, well, this guy seems to know what he's talking about. The other guy doesn't. Yeah, not just a paper tiger in this case. Yeah, exactly. It, and and for the CCIE tends to have fewer of those because of the nature of it being a practical lab exam. But there are also a lot of folks who, you know, got their exam done a long time ago and they're kind of set in their ways. And so, you know, there there can be a difference of opinion sometimes, which is good and bad. In the earlier days of the CCIE, uh, when did you take it? So I passed in uh, 2011, so I'm actually coming up on my 10-year anniversary. Oh, nice. And is that a lifetime designation? Do you have to renew every so often? I'm not as familiar with those. So it's it's kind of funny. I'm actually on the CCIE advisory board right now with Cisco. And uh, historically, you had to pass an exam every two years to recertify. So a lot of people would just go in and, and retake the written, um, again, the CCIE written exam, because the exam was two parts, a written qualification exam and a lab practical exam. Um, so as long as you took it every two years that you could keep your certification status until you got to uh, 20 years. Actually, no, I'm sorry, I take that back. At 10 years, you have the option to effectively retire. So that is called emeritus status. And what that means is is that you do not have to take an exam every two years going forward, but your certification progress, it no longer counts if you work at a partner. You've essentially said, I have tapped out of the industry. I don't use my CCIE anymore, so I'm going to park that. But if I ever want to be active again, I have to go retake an exam and basically bring my skill set up to current. Uh, now, last year that was changed. Um, so it used to be that you had two years with a one-year grace period. It's like if you didn't pass the exam after two years, you had one year to basically make yourself good. Well, now it's every three years you have to take the exam. But if you don't pass after that third year, your certification is suspended irrevoc- irrevocably, which means you have to go retake the lab in order to be a current CCIE. Yeah, that sounds like a tough one. Those simulated lab exams can be a challenge, I'm sure. I think nowadays you get a... You can get some kind of lab simulator, but my guess is 10 years ago, 15 years ago, you had to have the gear hands-on. you got to be able to mess with it at your house and press all the buttons so you know what you're doing when you take the test. Lots of hours spent on eBay trying to buy not brand new gear, but gear that was just old enough to run the code that I needed and not cost me a small fortune. And it was funny because, you know, you had to have very specific things. And then you ran into problems like, well, how do I how do I emulate a frame relay switch? Well, that's harder than you might think. And there were things that you really did need real hardware for. I remember running uh, the Dynamips emulator with GNS3 running on top of it many, many years ago when I was studying for my exam. And I could do anything I needed to do in a router. But as soon as I tried to do anything with switching... I was sunk because the exam uses actual Cisco switches. Well, Dynamips can only emulate a switch module in a Cisco router, which has a completely different interface. And so I could only do enough switching to make everything talk to itself. And then like, I had to go buy some switches and keep them in my office at work. So when I wanted to practice things like Ether channels or you know port security settings, that's where I had to do that. And now with the, uh, with Cisco's emulation software you can emulate anything 
you know, emulate switches, emulate firewalls, emulate routers. And that same software is actually what runs a large portion of the lab right now. So it's, it's actually nice that you can train on the material that you're going to be seeing because you have that same look and feel. Um, you know, back when I took the exam, there was still a physical rack of gear somewhere in the room. It was off to the side. You couldn't touch it. And so there were, you know, it, it's kind of a, it's a joke in the CCIE community that um, the first, like, maybe 30 minutes of your practical exam, um, invariably, the proctors will say that someone will come up and go, uh, I think you've got a hardware problem. And the proctor will just kind of get this very, like, you know, stern look on their face. Like, how do you know that? Well, I tried to put this command in and it didn't work. So at that point, the proctor knows which version of the exam you have. And they know that that's actually a kind of a trick to see if you're actually paying attention. And so what's really happening is, is that the candidate is trying to figure out what the right answer is. So what they're hoping is, is the proctor is going to come up and do some troubleshooting and maybe accidentally type the right command in to see what the output looks like. So what they'll do is they'll make the candidate wait at their desk and they'll walk over to the pod and they'll run a couple of really quick commands and basically see that no the pod works fine you just don't know what you're doing so then they'll walk over to the rack and they'll check a couple of connections and then they'll come back after about 20 minutes and go all of the equipment is in working order well now what you don't have a hardware problem go fix it and so they don't give you that time back and so it's like you know everyone wants to say it's got to be the hardware because i did everything right and they're looking over a very simple solution when in fact, you know, the problem really was is that you don't know what you're doing yet. But now that there's no physical hardware in the lab, it really doesn't matter because you can't go over and accidentally unplug a virtual cable. Everything's cabled correctly from the beginning. You have to know what you're doing. Yeah, you probably don't have access to, quote, unplug the virtual cable anyway. Mm -mm. It's so obfuscated from what you're doing and what you can actually touch and configure. Now, you mentioned being on the advisory board for this exam. What exactly does that entail? So the CCI is a very big moving part inside of Cisco. And several years ago, I was asked by the program manager to take part in the advisory board, uh, mostly because I kind of wrote a blog post based on some community feedback that I'd heard. Um, so I had a sit down meeting with the folks there. Uh, Yusuf Baji is the name of the program manager. And so he said, well, I want you to come in and, and kind of work with us to make this better. And so with some of my friends in the community and a lot of other well-known folks, we, we kind of got added to the board. And so a lot of it is, you know, discussing upcoming changes, debating whether or not they're, they're valuable to the community. Like, may, well, how do we want to add this versus that? Or how do we want to incorporate these new ideas? And so a lot of the changes that you've seen in the program over the course of the last, uh, I'd say, probably two years are things that have been very well debated inside of the advisory board to essentially say, is this something that will really help the community as opposed to, you know, just chasing whatever the hot topic is? I mean, I can't tell you how many times in the past I've heard, well, why doesn't Cisco do a, a CCIE SDN or a CCIE open flow? And I, I really wish I could find some of those people that were telling me that they needed to do a CCIE open flow all those years ago and ask them how well that's working out for them. Because the CCIE is kind of like the, the grand old maid of certification programs. It doesn't move without a good reason. And it takes a while to get where it's going because it doesn't follow trends. It sets them. That's an interesting way to think about it. Okay. I like that. What would you advise someone to use as a framework for deciding whether they want to go that high in a certification in the networking field or any field for that matter. It's a lot, it's a lot like getting your, um, 
if you have a college degree, for example, uh, a bachelor's degree is effectively saying that you know enough to, to do the, the basic level of, of college graduate work. Master's degree is a little bit more beyond that. Like I've, I truly have mastered the subject. But a PhD is something completely different because what you're doing is you're adding to the body of knowledge, essentially. You're doing a lot of research. You have to want to be that deep into the program. You don't just say, I'm doing this because I want to be the best. You're doing this because you want to leave an impact on people or you, you just want to be called doctor. In any certification program, whether it comes from Cisco or VMware or Juniper or, I don't know, you know, Dell back in the day, you have to want to understand things at a deeper level. Most of the jobs that your average operations team does don't really go beyond the CCNA plus, if you want to think about it like that. So for example, um, the entire time that I worked for my old company, I think I touched BGP twice, even though I had to know it inside and out for the CCIE exam. Like it was just not part of my job role. Now there were other things that I did that were kind of outside the scope of the CCIE, but I, I still had to know BGP. I still had to know frame relay. I still had to know all of the crazy interactions that happen with OSPF and Frame Relay, even though I never really used OSPF either. It's because it's a it's almost like an academic study. So that's the first thing I would warn people. If your job is 95% basic tasks, this is not going to be something that you're going to be able to do on-the-job training for, which automatically kind of puts it into a very different realm. So a lot of folks who do study for the CCIE they're going to spend hours upon hours studying for it on a nightly basis in order to feel comfortable enough with the material to pass. If you're not well, really ready to dedicate that kind of time, then it may not be for you. You know, just like doing your homework at school, just like attending study groups at school, any other thing, you essentially, you, on a, you almost have to be obsessed with it. And, and I don't say obsessed in the, the negative connotation, but you have to have that kind of attachment to it that makes you think, that when you're sitting there doing nothing else, your work's done for the day, the yard is mowed, the laundry's done, you need to be thinking, okay, well, let me try this Ether Channel Lab again. I want to make sure that I have that down pat. Let me make sure that I understand what happens when I type frame relay traffic shaping on a bare interface and not a sub-interface. If you don't understand those interactions, you're going to get into the lab, you're going to read a question, you're going to think you know what the answer is, you won't know all the the basically the the pitfalls that can go wrong with it and you're going to sink yourself from the beginning you have to be able to understand the technology at a level to know every possible outcome to figure out the best path forward if you're not ready to put that kind of time in you probably shouldn't because once you dive in you're going to realize exactly how much time it takes to get to that level of understanding it sounds like a a little bit like the concept Scott Lowe calls the full stack engineer, except in this case, the full networking stack. Yeah. I took a boot camp. It was right before I took my first lab attempt. And uh, the boot camp was taught by my chronics uh, training, uh, Narbek Kocharians. Uh, he's, he's a wonderful person. But some of the stuff in his lab book just made me scratch my head. I'm like, how could you do that with a router? Like, he'd be like, all right, I want you to create a RIP adjacency on these two routers on completely opposite ends of the network that don't touch each other directly. And you're, like, sitting there going, well, how can I do this? And it turns out you have to use, like, an, an extended um, mirror port that essentially tunnels all the traffic through the network. And I'm like, why would you need to do that? And he goes, well, I had to do it once. 
And I'm like, that way, if anybody ever asks you to do something that crazy, you're already aware that something like this would work and exists and you can work on it. And you're like, oh, yeah, because a lot of those tests, a lot of those high level exams, whether they're the VCDX or the CCIE or the JNCIE, there's only so many ways that you can slice a network or a virtualization setup. What they're really testing you on is what happens when someone throws a curveball at you. And, and we've all run into those situations before. Like it's infamous in the industry for the uh, the, the fresh out of the barrel, uh, newly minted CCIE to walk into the core router of an ISP and type debug IP packet detail on the command line and hit enter. And then the entire ISP melts down. Because in a lab, you can get away with typing that command because there's not any traffic flowing across the box. And it allows you to see the entire packet walk. If you do that on a live production device that's already running above 50% capacity, it can't keep up because it has to spend even more time throwing all those logging messages onto the console. And so, you know, you have to know enough about it to know not to do that. But those are the kinds of pitfalls you run into. I want you to tell me what the packets you're doing, but you can't use these commands. All right, well, I got to think of a more creative way to do that. Or I want the output of this command to look exactly like this. Okay, well, you could spend an hour trying to figure out exactly how to make it work without realizing, oh, what they're actually doing is they want you to filter these three pieces over here so that they don't show up in that output. Because if you do it any other way, it's going to break something you did an hour ago. These are the kinds of constraints that we deal with all the time in in modern networks. I want you to deploy this application, but you can't do anything else with this server over here because that's not yours and you need to work around it. It's like, all right, I think I can do this. Yeah, teaching you to really think at a deep level and be able to troubleshoot. Yeah, not just typing commands into a command line. You have to think about what you're going to do and you almost like the, the the scratch paper right there beside you. Well, you know, people are like, "Oh, well, I know the commands. I don't need to write it down." No, you have to think about, "Okay, well, if I type this command in with this switch on it, what's going to happen?" I don't want to do that live because if I do that, like if it breaks the network, you're going to spend 30 minutes rolling those changes back. And I've been there before. I'm like, okay, that command didn't work. And then you like try to undo the command. Well, now everything's all thrown out of whack. And it's like, well, crap, now what do I do? And so you, you kind of have to think ahead because anybody can type a command in out of a book or copy and paste something from Stack Overflow. It's what happens when that command wrecks everything that you come back from it. I mean, that's the learning experience. And you're like, I will never do that again. Yep. It reminds me of the time I plugged both ends of the same cable into a switch. Mm -hmm. Flooded the network. Except only half the network would stop working and it would be a different half (laughs) every couple minutes. That was the first major problem that I ever troubleshooted at my company. I think I was on day three and we had done an entire day's worth of work at this client site. And right before we leave, we get a phone call from the principal at one of the schools. And he says, well, I can't get to the internet. And so we just happened to walk into the server room. And one of the servers was just going crazy. Like the console was scrolling up with messages that there was a conflict for a certain IP address. And so we're like, well, crap, now we got to fix it because they have school tomorrow. And so we, me and the guy that I was shadowing had to call in one of the senior engineers who came down to help us out. And as he's on his way down, because it was like a, an hour drive to get there, like I'm trying to do all of this troubleshooting with no internet, right? And I finally figured out, okay, the problem is, is that the server thinks that it's conflicting with its own IP address. 
So when I talk to the senior guy, when he gets there, he goes, all right, well, what happened this? What happened that? And to come to find out the, the guy I was shadowing had done the exact same thing. He looped a cable and a switch, which created a bridging loop. You know, we call them spanning tree loops colloquially. And it's like, well, now what? And I never forgot that. And I actually ran into that situation twice after that. And both times I had a junior working underneath me and it wasn't critical. So I let them noodle through the problem. And then when they're like, well, I don't know what it is. I'm like, did you check this? Well, no. And then when they fixed it and all the problems went away, I said, same thing happened to me. You're never going to forget this, are you? No. I'm like, you're right. Because that is the object lesson from this is you have to think beyond what the internet tells you. You have to think beyond what the book says should be the problem. Think through every possible troubleshooting step, no matter how crazy they are. Because if you can eliminate them, then you know it can't be that. Because who would plug two cables into, into the same switch ports, you know, into different things? Well, I don't know. Who plugs two a, a patch cable in a classroom from, you know, port one to port three? Well, a teacher who's leaving for the summer and doesn't want the cable to get dragged across the floor when they're waxing it. So she just plugs it in and all of a sudden the network goes down. Yeah. There's something about having that extremely humbling experience of breaking something or just having to bring something back from the from the depths of chaos that you just don't it just sticks with you it's impossible almost to to simulate it if you haven't been through it but yeah great great learning experiences i wanted to ask a, another question about the networking field tom if i'm someone who's going into the networking field today do i need to be learning some sort of scripting language for network automation as well is that more important today than it was five to ten years ago? Less important? Equally important? It's equally important. So I look at it like this. Car mechanics today are an interesting breed because cars are effectively computers. They're, everything is run by some sort of a central brain. But the basics of an internal combustion engine really haven't changed in 100 years. You know, you, you still have to inject aerosolized fuel into a chamber that ignites it and drives a piston. Doesn't matter whether you're driving a motorcycle or a Bugatti. You have to know how an internal combustion engine works. Now, fuel injectors versus carburetors, um, you know, timing belts, timing chains, what have you. You still have to know the basics. Now, a modern mechanic needs to have a code reader to understand what a car is trying to tell him is wrong with it as opposed to, you know, tapping on certain things with a little ball peen hammer and going, yeah, that doesn't sound right. I think your timing's off. Networking is no different. A lot of, you know, a lot of my friends will tell you, you know, you really have to have a good basics in something like Python. You have to understand network automation and orchestration and all that other stuff. Yeah, you're right. But if you're automating VLANs, you still have to know what a VLAN is. You still have to know the, the um, limits of what a VLAN can do for you. You have to understand why packets won't go from port one to port five on a switch if they're in different VLANs without something special. So you still need to know the basics. You just need to know a little bit more than the basics now. You know, like I go back to that thing I mentioned, like CCNA plus. The basics of the CCNA will tell you how a packet works with a little bit of a Cisco flavor. The JNCIA will do it for a Juniper network. But then it's taking those fundamentals and that knowledge and building on it. Okay, well, now I'm going to orchestrate these two things together. Once you get to that point, that allows you to specialize a little bit more. Okay, well, now, you know, the operations team, I'm going to write a script that will automatically bounce a port that goes into error disabled status because of a BPDU filter exception or something like that. Okay, well, that's an automation piece, but you still have to know why did the system, why did the port get error disabled? Well, there's a guard on it that says that if it detects something on the other side of that port that shouldn't be there, 
I'm going to shut it down. Okay, well, I can get, I can bring the port back up. Well, if it goes down again, rather than having the script constantly re-enabling the port, you need to go figure out what's dragging the port down. Did somebody plug a switch in? Possible. Root cause analysis, understanding those components. I like it. Really important. And it's the same with cloud, any other field. You know, people say, well, you don't need to learn how to stand up a server anymore. Well, somebody needs to know how to do it because somebody's written the automation for it. I mean, they, they make backhoes to dig things up now, but you better know how to dr- operate a shovel if you're going to do construction work because you never know when you're going to need to d- you grab your shovel and dig a hole. Yeah, keep the shovels away from me. I tend to work on finding sprinkler heads and either break them or cut somebody's cable on accident. Imagine what I could do with a backhoe. I don't even want to know. Now, at some point after you got deeply technical in the networking field, you actually became a part of the Tech Field Day team. Can you tell us? Tell the listeners a little bit about how that happened and what made that interesting. Yeah, it's it's funny because like I spent oh man years studying for my CCIE. back to this, I couldn't help but think of Manny Sadu back in episode 80, and he talked about how we should look for opportunities to catch a wave or follow a technology trend, and that's exactly what happened to Tom when he got into networking, and he got deeper and deeper through a lot of learning and hard work, and that was constant throughout his his career, but it was also part of the necessity of his day job to get deeper into networking because the customers he was working with had more complex networks and larger environments. I liked how Tom talked about the need to be obsessed with preparation for that exam, the dedication of that daily lab time, the focus on that need for deep understanding, and that what we're really preparing for when we take a big exam like this are the curveballs that the real world throws at us. We need to be prepared for any scenario. It must have been rewarding to make an impact on the exam that you worked so hard to pass. When Tom talks about it, he talks about it like being a PhD and contributing to the body of work. If you're someone who's learning an automation language, it's important to make sure you still understand the basics and the fundamentals. Because if you can't troubleshoot the thing you're trying to automate, automating it isn't going to solve all your problems. Well, next week, we're going to talk about Tom's move to Tech Field Day and what that transition was like. Some might think the transition to the role at Tech Field Day was less technical. But was it? The answer comes next week. Just a reminder again that we want people to subscribe and give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. We want to know if we're being helpful and are always looking for interesting questions to ponder. We're collectively on Twitter, at NerdJourney. Farewell, listeners. Tune in next time as the journey continues. I'm Nick Cordy at NetworkNerd underscore, flying solo for now. For my buddy John White at V Journeyman, signing off.